Welcome back, creeps. Hey y'all. Sorry. Hey, <laughs> Sorry that we uh we missed a week, but we've had some stuff going on back here that um is out of our hands. So everything is good. Um so thanks for the people who like messages making sure that we were all right. We're fine. But yeah, we just stuff came up and we didn't get a chance to record last week. Yeah. Basically. It's basically our family. There's a family emergency that went on and it's still going on. So yeah, that's yeah. where we are. Pretty much. But everything is like nothing is um physically wrong with us, with you and I. That's yeah, as with much us. As and like nothing is crucial at the minute either. Like the family members being like looked <laughs> after. And stuff yeah. Like that, you know what I mean? Anyway, that's about it. <laughs> that's as much detail as we want to yeah. go into. Anyway, I'm excited for this week's, this series that we're doing. Uh-huh. It's not like, well, to me, it's spooky season stuff, but it's not necessarily paranormal. Okay? Okay. So just like putting that out there. Cool. Anyway, I'm still excited. All right. How? Well, if you're excited, so am I. Good. How I hope what? that you all are as well. Also, we're recording in the day. <laughs> On a Saturday. Yeah, so this could be troublesome. Anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, you guys already know. Yeah. You know what's up. Have you got a tarot card for us? I do. Today's tarot card of the day is the Nine of Cups. Today, delight in your senses and emotions. Taste the delicious food you eat. Feel the comfort of your home. Appreciate the amazing gifts of music and art that have been created for our pleasure. Feel the amazing love that flows in and out of your heart. What an amazing world. What an amazing thing to be alive. Choose to be happy today. It really is a choice. Wow. Wow. That, I feel like that for me is uh, pretty on point. Like, I've just been playing the guitar for the first time in months. Yeah. I think the main message that I get from that card is just delight in your senses, you know? Yeah. And don't get stuck on the things that, the material things that you don't have. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like that. Even though it's cups, because, you know, it has to do with emotions. But, um, of course, I mean, that's if you can choose to be happy, because, I mean, it's it's kind of a slap in the face to tell someone to choose to be happy if they suffer from if they're in a bout of depression or or something yeah. like that but do your best is basically what the card is telling you yeah and we have both been like glued to the blind boy podcast yeah <laughs> this last couple of weeks and the fun like my cousin told me about this years ago and mm -hmm. i remember which one marcus oh marcus yeah um but I remember actually when I was working in Dublin, I would be getting the bus home and Blind Boy was scheduled to be playing in the club across the street from the bus from the bus stop. Mm -hmm. And his poster was up and I was like, who the fuck, like, who's <laughs> going to see this guy? Like, you know what I mean? And anyway, I should have known, but like, I think when people tell me to do stuff, it generally takes three or four years for it to actually get through my school. And then I'll do it and I'm like, oh. This is cool. Got it. So three more years. Three more years. Yeah. <laughs> just start giving me like updates now. Yeah. But no, it's actually like, it's really uh, insightful, like with, in terms of like 
mental health and stuff like that. Yeah. But also just random facts. Mm-hmm. I feel like, so Blind Boy already had an audience when he started his his um, show anyway. But the deep dives that he does are like what I would love to be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we do specifically deep dives on paranormal stuff and today is true crime, which is great. Like that's why we're all here, obviously. But he picks like the most random of random things. And I'm I'm loving it. Yeah. Like I I love random facts, random bullshit. Tell me about why this otter is, you know, owning 21 kilometers of his own territory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anyway, so I just he's still an independent podcaster. Like he's huge in comparison to us. But go check him out. You're guaranteed to have a good time. And he talks really funny as well. <laughs> yeah because of his limerick accent yeah because he's from limerick boy i fucking love it yeah anyway that's enough fangirling over blind boy that's just what we've been stuffing down our faces that and the office super fan episodes yeah those have a lot uh they're the full episodes like nothing is cut from them except for the bloopers of course but like, yeah the outtakes but it's all there like some 20 minute office episodes are now 40 minutes on this. Yeah. It's only the first five seasons though, for some reason. And it's like sporadic episodes. It's, it's like, it doesn't, it's not every single one of them. It's just a few of them. Yeah. And well, like they, they all have extra stuff. Yeah. It's just some might only have an extra 30 seconds, but yeah, we've been just like dumping comfort stuff. Yeah. Faces, what I like about those episodes is that it kind of fills holes that we didn't even realize were there. We just kind of took the episodes yeah. as they were. And then when we see the extra content in these episodes, it's like, oh, so this is why. This they, happened. Yeah. And it makes a lot more sense. It's like more cohesive. Mm-hmm. And then also I noticed a relationship between Jim and Toby that I really wish what, what I would have wished to have seen more of. Yeah. Like Jim and I Toby were actually good friends. Yeah. And I would have never picked up on that. So anyway, I never did pick up on that, really. <laughs> if you like The Office, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, I'm really stingy when it comes to like uh, online subscriptions for like TV stuff because we'll go like months binge watching like one thing and one thing only and then never look at it again or for like years. So we end up like at one point it was like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, this yeah. that, and all the rest for like one show here or there. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like, no, I'm going to subscribe to one thing. And that's the thing that I'm watching now. And then I'll cancel it. But anyway, we're, so we got Peacock was like, I think $2 a month or something. Yeah. So that's how we got access to it. You didn't need to know all that. But, you know, that's basically what we've been doing with mm-hmm. our lives. That and those nice Japanese travel videos. Yeah. They're in the perspective of like, it's PO, like it's your point of view. Yeah. Where it look, it feels like you're the one walking around Japan and going to these hotels, uh, love hotels, train like over, sleeping trains and sleeping buses and stuff like that. But what my favorite part of those videos is that um, you it starts out with you walking through Japan, so you just kind of get like a small window of the busy streets of Japan, and I like to see what people are wearing just because i like clothes yeah. you know and so that's why i enjoy it it's just a really nice glimpse into another world mm-hmm. 
And it actually led me to, while I was writing this um, episode, I'm also embracing the fact, thanks to Blind Boy, I'm embracing the fact that this is our art. <laughs> yeah. And that that's the thing I'm taking from that. Good. But, um, I, I think that's really good. It's really important because uh, I think we get wrapped up and I get like with my own Twitch stuff, sometimes I get wrapped up in what other people want, you yeah. know, and then, then I'm like, like, I just wish people would tell me what they want. And I'm just like, well, who gives a fuck? Because this is what I want to do. And if I keep relying on what other people want, it won't be fun for me anymore. And it'll be a drag. And then I'll get burnt out on yet another creative outlet. Yeah, that I've that made just for myself becomes unfun. Correct. But no, so while I was writing this, I um, I was watching like just random videos. The New York, like this this dude that just walks around New York in the rain. Yeah, that's it. Delightful. And you know, and you know I think we, well, for me personally, that's the kind of content that I that I lean towards now because especially now these like. Uh, almost two weeks now, like I've, I've just been having a rough time. And the reason why I go back to these comfort things is not just because of the rough time, but because I'm like on for eight hours a day at work, you know, or I'm on when I'm with family. And when I'm finally away from all those stressors, like I just want to decompress. Like, I don't want to think, I don't want to like, you know what I mean? I just want you to talk to me chill or I just want to walk some, like watch someone walk into a fucking hotel and I want to watch them chill and then we're chilling together (laughs) on YouTube and we're just vibing. Yeah. It's like the equivalent of having a really busy window outside your front door. It's like lo-fi for your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway... With that being said, and actually you touched on a good point. I'm doing this particular series because I want to. Cool. Because through our statistics and all that kind of crap, we get a noticeable drop off when we do true crime. But for me, it's like it. I really enjoy this stuff. Like I have that Dennis Nielsen book that I've been slowly trudging through and it's amazing. Yeah. It's the best thing ever. But it's, I know if I do a series on it we're gonna lose a bunch of listeners and i'm like um well like maybe you could still present the information but present it in a a different way because to be fair like the man's an awful person and like it's just it's first of all it's like exploiting i know it's we don't mean to but we're exploiting victims when we're just yeah yeah you know what i mean so if you were to present and present it in a different kind of way, then maybe yeah, it'd be maybe. fine. But like, this is a really good opportunity for you to revolutionize the way true crime is presented. Don't you think? I think that's bigger than me. But, um, <laughs> I wait. think you, I think you can do it. Well, either way. Today, we're going to start off with, I mean, you already know because you looked at the title. I wish you could hide the title until people were done. I, I love the surprise element. So anyway, let's get started. Okay. We, today's sources, and for the next probably two weeks, are Smithsonian Magazine, well, SmithsonianMag.com, his, History.com, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, Depraved by Harold Schechter. And I think there was a another article... No, there's another author that I read an article from as well that I'll reference down below. But I'm going to start this episode off with a quote. Okay? Okay. I was born with the devil in me. 
I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more that a poet can help the inspiration to sing. Herman Mudgett, circa 1896. Now that name might not sound too familiar to you, but Herman Mudgett has been given the title of America's first serial killer. Okay. Some claim that he had murdered up to as many as 200 people, most of which had checked in as guests to Herman's very own hotel. Funky Herman's fuckhouse is what I would have named it. Oh, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you named it that. I named it that. Funky Herman's fuckhouse, yes. It was a three-story, block-long building which dominated the corner of 63rd and Wallace Street in Englewood, an up-and-coming, bustling suburb just south of Chicago. This hotel was a symbol of the very success and hunger of not just the relatively new neighborhood, but Chicago as a whole. Herman was not just the owner of this hotel, but the architect and the only man to truly know its secrets. Hidden passages, greased chutes, soundproof rooms and a basement filled with chemicals and an oven capable of reaching 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, like any good story, there's a lot of hearsay that kind of snowballed throughout the years. And people have dedicated some serious time to the study of Herman Mudgett and his late 19th century hijinks we're going to call it both authors of the books that i read for this series have admitted that there's only so much you can do when it comes to like weeding out fact checking and which articles make are real and which ones are not especially when so much time has passed and even more so when a lot of the journalism at the time was just outwardly making stuff up it's called yellow journalism i think okay and it's just like I mean, basically what CNN and Fox News still do to this day, but it's like, oh, look, I tipped this can over. And then it's like 14 died because can fell over in factory or something. You know what I mean? They're just running with it. And like I said, that hasn't really changed over the years. But now we can look back at certain news events and decipher a fairly good idea of what actually transposed. And this isn't me just being like woke either. I, my nanny, right, this is a little uh, tangent. But I always remember my nanny, like my grandmother, um, she told me that her mother, right, who was still alive until I was seven, actually read a a newspaper story of her own death, like years before she died. That's so bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, before I was born or anything. She was like sick in hospital one time and the newspapers picked it up. My nanny's brother was like pretty famous. So the newspapers picked it up and were like, oh, such and such is mom died in hospital on this date or whatever and she was like lying there reading this fucking story (laughs) like no (laughs) so i personally have never believed like tabloids specifically anyway would have been like oh awesome i guess i don't have to pay taxes anymore yeah yeah hospital bill covered anyway eric larson writes what is known as narrative nonfiction. he basically pieces stories together from a whole array of sources from like people's handwritten journals to newspapers and books printed at the time and even like letters that people would have sent to one another that would have ended up like stored for in like memoirs or something i don't know but they're like little miniature time capsules on paper basically and then he tries to put you in the world of the stories that he's telling using all of this like random information. Like The Devil in the White City isn't a story about Herman Mudgett. It's a story about the architecture of Chicago 
and all of the carry on that went into the World's Fair in 1893 and how they got to the World's Fair in 1893. It's like context overload. Yeah, like it's insane. And it, it so the story, again, I'm not trying to plug my TikTok, but I, another book of his that I read covered um, the storm of, I think it was 1900 in yeah, Galveston, Galveston, right? And yeah. I have spoken about it on here before because it was like, it was a horrific event anyway but like he in that book he was telling stories that like people in far off lands had heard you know because oh well my brother's sister actually worked in Galveston at this time and this is the letter that she sent me that kind of stuff right really really cool and like really rich storytelling but because of this Although all of his stuff is factually correct, there is a couple of scenes in The Devil in the White City that he has completely fabricated. But he has written in his notes and sources that these are assumed or plausible events that may have played out this way or that. So it doesn't change the story or anything, but it would be like, as we'll find out sooner, it's like, oh, well, he may have taken her to this location to give her, like, to show her the slaughterhouse of... Chicago I can't remember the it was like the stockyards or something where all this butchering used to go on it was just to further pull you into the story like give you the taste of it like but it was nothing story changing okay just random little bits here and there like lubricant for your mind That's all right written here. <laughs> anyway I'm only prefacing this in this way to say let's try and stick to the actual facts but we will still be taking some of it with a pinch of salt So let's get our feet in the dirt of Gilmanton Academy, New Hampshire, a town so remote that in 1861 there was no daily newsprints or even regular trains to bring tales of events from the outside world. Today, the town's population is still less than 4,000 and is just called Gilmanton. So Gilmanton Academy was called so after some academy somewhere else. But now they've dropped it, so it's just Gilmanton. But don't worry, because they've rebuilt Gilmanton Academy in Gilmanton. <laughs> what? Yeah. Anyway, it's here that Herman Webster Mudgett was born to Levi and Theodate Mudgett. I think that's Theodate. I don't know. All right. Hardworking, devout Methodists who weren't afraid of disciplining their offspring. Levi was a farmer, and I think he would do odd jobs here and there as well, just to get by but ultimately seemed like the stereotypical physical labor man's man. Herman was not so much. He was the second child and a self-professed mommy's boy who spent a lot of his time reading, inventing things and just being alone. I think he was like a sickly kid, you know, spent a lot of time like in bed and stuff like that. Smaller than the other kids and just yeah, pale and easily an easy target for bullies. Right. There's not a huge amount of information on Herman's childhood because, again, this happened in the 1800s. But I think what we do know comes straight from his own memoirs. So here is definitely pinch of salt territory. At the age of five, he would walk to school and his walk would take him past the local doctor's office, which had like this lovely bleached and articulated skeleton for the doctor to reference. Now, this was a very common thing. This was a time when skeletons in doctor's offices or classrooms were all made from one reliable source. People. People. Actual human bone. Herman had a pretty rational fear of the doctor's office as well. Not only because of this, but because 
like Michael Scott, he associated it with sickness. <laughs> all right. And as well, all of his school friends had come up with these like gnarly stories about cabinets full of amputated limbs and preserved heads, like, you know, hidden behind walls, stuff like this. All right. So two older boys somehow found out that Herman was terrified of the doctor's office. Uh-huh. And one day they dragged him in there and they forced him into the corner with the skeleton. Jesus. Now he's like, as he described it, it was like, you know, the long arms reached out to grab me. But thankfully, the doctor came rushing in to see what all the kerfuffle was about. And the two bullies bolted, leaving Herman in an absolute state, sobbing so hard he had begun to gag. So I, this particular scene, like I do feel bad for this kid. It's horrific. But Herman would later say that this experience was actually good for him. A sort of sink or swim type deal, which helped him ultimately get over his fear. By age 11, he was even said to be conducting his own secret medical experiments. His first subjects being small salamanders and frogs, but gradually working his way up to rabbits, cats and stray dogs. All living, according to Harold Schechter. It is speculated that he would keep little trophies like a skull or a paw in a secret metal box hidden in the cellar of his house. Anybody watching the Dahmer series on Netflix, because that's all I've heard about. I haven't actually seen it yet. But yes, just like Jeffrey Dahmer doing these weird little experiments on animals. Um, But it's just a trope of, you know, promising young murderers. I read that one of Herman's favorite pastimes as a boy was to, quote, hike to a boulder. And shout to generate an echo. I mean, <laughs> if I that's all there was to do, like I'm not all surprised right. he ended up doing these weird experiments on the side, though. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can go and find a boulder later and we can just shout off of it. Yeah, I'm game. Generate an echo. He's said to have had one close friend growing up, an older boy named Tom. This friendship... This friendship... This friendship didn't last very long, however, as one day when the two lads were exploring an abandoned house, Tom tragically fell to his death from the upstairs landing. Holy shit. This doesn't seem to be questioned by anyone, like, as anything other than just a tragic accident. But that's really weird, right? Yeah. Just the two boys off playing. And, like, not to reference, like, other cases or anything, but, like, Ed Gein and his brother... Had like, like his brother died in a fire. Oh yeah, that Remember, whole bit. In the field. Uh-huh. And ultimately, I think actually Harold Schechter has debunked the Ed Gein brother killer thing, but still, just a very bizarre like event to have happened. Yeah. At sixteen, he became a teacher in Gilmanton. Sixteen, right? Okay. And then in Alton, where he met Clara A. Lovering. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Maybe it's lovering, but lovering, I think. Clara fell hard for Herman, and the two got married in July of 1878. Their relationship grew cold pretty quickly after they got married. Almost like the only reason they got married is because Clara wouldn't let Herman do the devil's dance with her unless they were married. And as soon as he got what he wanted, he just wasn't interested anymore. Interesting. So he started disappearing for a few days at a time. Gradually, these stints became longer and longer until eventually he just never came back. Yeah, he just stayed away. Yeah. I'm going for cigarettes and the paper. Yo, 
my mom told me a story of somebody that lived on our the road where we grew up, like uh, in the old house. Mm-hmm. Someone's family, like someone's dad, who actually did that, and the family were ready to go on holiday. Oh. Like it was like everybody had their suitcases packed, and he was like, oh, "I'm just gonna run down to the shop and get smokes." And that's it. That's it. <gasps> Horrific. I don't know how true that is, but that story stuck with me. <laughs> like that bastard. Wow. He like stood his whole family up. Yeah. So that's any any time, like my dad or anybody was like, "I'm just going to get smokes," I'd be like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> <laughs> is your GPS on on your phone? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, at 19, he went to medical school in Vermont. Sorry if this is like fact overload, but uh, anyway. That's a basic, that's, that's basically what Eric is. Larson book is. Oh, f- yeah. Yeah. That and the other book. So at 19, he went to medical school in Vermont, but moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan after his first year. So he could attend University of Michigan, which at the time was a leading medical school. Well known for its, quote, emphasis on the controversial art of dissection. So, like, he knew what he was getting himself into. Okay. (laughs) That summer, he took a job as a traveling salesman. He was given a bunch of books, told to go to random places and sell the books and then come back and give the money to the company and Mm. he could keep his commission. Mm. Fair deal. All right. Herman pretty quickly realized that if he just didn't go back to the company and if he didn't give them their money back, then he would get a lot more money for himself. So that's exactly what he did. It was much more profitable. He graduated from U of M. Oh, wait, is that a thing? Remember I asked you the other day? Oh, yeah, uh, for some, yeah. So he graduated from the University of Michigan in 1884 with no real drama. His grades weren't fantastic or anything, but from here he went to Moore's Forks, funded by another traveling sales swindle. And here he was hired as the principal of the local grade school, because why the fuck not? He worked at the school until he managed to open his own pharmacy where he worked for a year. Now, again, this is part of, um, I think it's called, like, in his own words, the memoirs or whatever, but this is from his book. And I think he just assumed that if he opened his own drugstore, like his own pharmacy, he was the druggist, that he would automatically become just fucking loaded overnight. But he soon realized that this was not the case and he was barely making more than he had been as a principal, which he considered like a pauper's wage. And he was saying that he was on like death's door of starvation almost. So he paid a visit to a college friend who he knew had some pretty flexible morals, just like himself. And they started talking about a plan that they had conceived while they were in college. The plan was that Herman and his mate were going to go get another couple of lads and between them all, They were going to fake the debts of a family of three. Now, I'm not sure how they intended to do this exactly, but the family, I think, were just going to go missing. And then they were going to have three random bodies loosely fitting the description of the missing family show up as proof. But by the time the bodies would be found, they would be in such a bad state of decomposition that they would be unrecognizable anyway. And then the lads would split the $40,000 from the insurance policy, which would amount to roughly... 1.1 million in today's money. It's such a hefty policy. This was going to be split between like at least six or seven people. And I'm going to quote this next bit from the devil in the white city just to show the complexity of this plan. 
Herman claimed to have gone to Chicago in November 1885 and there to have acquired his, quote, portion of the bodies. Unable to find a job, he placed his portion in storage and left for Minneapolis until May of 1886, when he left for New York City, planning to take, quote, a part of the material there and to leave the rest in Chicago. This, he said, necessitated repacking the same. He claimed to have deposited one package of dismembered cadaver in the Fidelity Storage Warehouse in Chicago. The other accompanied him to New York, where he lodged it in a safe place. He was getting on trains and shit, you know what I mean? With just like an arm or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, And all he had to wrap it in was probably paper. People just probably thought he just came from the butchers. Maybe, but like he got the body or his portion of the bodies in November. He went to New York in May. You know what I mean? Like these were severely decomposed bodies at this point. And like, that's gross. Yeah, it's gross. (laughs) And he was just like leaving them in storage warehouses. Like, I don't think refrigeration was a thing. Maybe. Well, I mean, salt definitely was a thing. Maybe it was cured. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that's. Anyway. This little episode, this little blip in Herman's past was actually taken from his own personal memories, like I was saying, or sorry, personal memoirs. And he went on to say that after going through all that effort, that he actually ended up getting cold feet and not following through with the plan because he didn't believe he could trick the insurance companies of the time. This doesn't sound like the Herman that we all know, though. So it could have just been him trying to win the public opinion, being like, oh, no, 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 I could never follow through with such a ghastly plan you know but we'll never know one way or the other unfortunately it's said that the money troubles that forced him into such a dire position that he would be driven to such diabolical acts wasn't even true the fellow that he rented a room from in moore's forks said that herman was always showing off just big old chunks of cash he also left that boarding house in the middle of the night with all of his belongings and an unpaid bill Mm. such a scoundrel was young Mr. Mudgett. Okay. Scoundrel. <laughs> but no, that that's just the type he was. He was a con man. Essentially, yeah. like a flim-flan man. After leaving Moore's Forks, he worked a couple of odd jobs here and there, one being at a Philadelphia drugstore, which didn't last too young, as a young boy died after taking medicine from the store, and Herman beat feet as soon as word got back to him. Funnily enough... There was also rumours of a small boy going missing in Moore's Forks, last seen hanging around with Herman. But Mr. Mudgett assured Inquisitors that the boy had simply gone back to Massachusetts in the middle of the night on his own. And of course, everybody believed him because he was the charming young doctor, the charming young school principal. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So from Philadelphia, he found himself back in Chicago only to find out that if he wanted to work in Illinois as a druggist, he would need to pass an exam in the state capital, which is capital of Illinois. Uh, I don't know. Springfield, Springfield, Illinois. Uh. <laughs> Who knew? And it was in July 1886 in Springfield that Herman decided it was time to rid himself of the unfortunate name of Herman Webster Mudgett and become none other than Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. Better known as H.H. Holmes. 
lightning and shit is uh, on my notes there. <laughs> <laughs> Just lightning and, <laughs> and shit. shit. Holmes made his way to Englewood in July of 1886 too. Now, Englewood today, because I've looked it up, is just considered Chicago. Like, it's just a neighborhood in Chicago. But at the time, it was still far away from the city that it was, like, nice. Basically what Tomball is today. Okay. Like, there was still, like, fields and shit not too far from him. But he must have just gotten his druggist license and went straight there. It was no secret that the suburbs population was exploding at this time. Like, so he obviously knew what he was doing. You know what I mean? He didn't just happen to be there. The Great Fire of Chicago had taken out most of downtown in 1871. But rather than halt the city's growth, the results of this huge fire actually gave architects a fresh new canvas to rebuild the city from scratch, essentially. So this just drove millions of people in. And this and very generous donations from other countries and other cities throughout the states led to Chicago becoming one of the first skyscraper cities. And again, Eric Larson's book is full of architectural facts. But this is all, you know reasons why uh H. H. Holmes picked here. He knew the hustle and bustle of this place was guaranteed to give him money, fame, possibly, and for like all of the good stuff. Okay. The population just grew and grew and naturally people had to move further and further out of the city. And so Englewood became the bustling suburb, filled with people escaping the stink and pollution of downtown Chicago, which the stink of Chicago is written about in all cases. It was said to just be rancid. I would imagine it's like London. Yeah, it, yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you're kind of considered wealthy just living out of the stink. You Gross. know? Yeah. This perspective really modernized this whole story for me as well, personally. Like, yeah, 1886 was 136 years ago, but these people were still getting trams and streetcars and trains from their suburban development neighborhoods to work and stuff. You know what I mean? Like Nintendo as a company opened just three years after this. That's wild. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a a nice little random fact. But yeah, that like Nintendo actually opened as a card trading or a, a playing card company in 1889 or 1890 or something. But like Coca-Cola and stuff like that, like people were living very modern lives. Yeah. At this time. And a little side note to the Great Fire of Chicago. Nobody really knows how it started, but it appears to have begun in a barn belonging to Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. Some people believe a thief knocked over a lantern while stealing milk from the barn. Harold Schechter suggests kids sneaking a cheeky smoke in the hayloft, while others suggest the work of a sinister bovine kicking a lantern over. A sinister bovine. <laughs> yeah, I don't even An know if you could use... Choice of yeah, words. I was going for something. Uh, yeah, basically people say like a cow kicked it over, but it, it, it was really accusatorily written. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, a man named Lewis M. Cohn confessed to starting the fire by accidentally knocking over a lantern while running away from an illegal card game. But he was a cow, so he was. Twist. Yeah, his mother was a cow, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the story goes that Holmes got off the train at Englewood that fateful hot July day in 1886 and only had to ramble a mere block down 63rd Street before setting his sights on where his future lay. Despite the unmercifully hot July weather that they were experiencing, the young mysterious doctor didn't seem to be affected by the heat at all. He was wearing a spotlessly clean brown suit, vest, jacket and all, a neatly tied cravat, 
gold pocket watch chain, golden buttons on his jacket, and a big fat moustache. The descriptions of him are amazing, right? Like genuinely. Schechter describes him as slim, 150 pounds, 5 feet 7 inches with a, quote, manly carriage. Moving with a quiet grace, his lower lip, feminine in its fullness. He had dark hair and eyes of slate blue. A doctor named John Cappin wrote of Holmes's ear, It has a marvellously small ear, and at the top it is shaped and carved after the fashion in which old sculptors indicated deviltry and vice in their statues of satyrs. He is made on a very delicate mould. The fuck? Yeah, and like, even so Schechter described them as 155.7, Eric Larson was... I think he said like 175, 58, you know what I mean? So Yeah. Again. So he seems like very like a very lanky man. Yeah, like he's still not like brawn and muscles by any uh, yeah. standard, but he is definitely like bony rather. Well, no, I mean he essentially weighs like the same as he is me. Like my build, I'm 170. You know what I mean? You are? Yeah. Oh. I just look a lot heavier, thanks. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and I'm also 5'7". Mm. Um, but I think he just held himself with the the aura of money and wealth. Do you okay. know what I mean? Mm. Like, very well put together. I think back in the day, like, muscles and stuff like that would have signified a labourer. Ah. Uh, you know? Yeah. Like, this man being delicate means that he is... Of has much, money. Yeah, you know. And he probably has soft hands. Oh, the most delicate of hands. <laughs> it is said, and actually, yeah, because you're going to hear a little bit more about those hands now. It's said that the effect <laughs> he had on women was profound. Eric Larson wrote that he, quote, stood too close, stared too hard, touched too much and too long. And women adored him for it. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a fucking creep. Yeah, he honestly. Does. He does. But to a certain extent, this... This had to be true, like this overbearing presence, I think is probably a good term for it. Yeah, yeah. And at a time when, you know, maybe this was seen as like, whereas now if somebody did that, we would be like, get the fuck away from me. Yeah. Back then it would have been like, oh my God. You yeah, know, like it's he, so he risque. doesn't even. Yeah, you know, like. Because you just don't do something like that. So anyway, there he stood on the corner. I guess now you really don't do something. Now you really don't do it, yeah. You really don't. So there he stood on the corner of 63rd and Wallace Street, outside the window of Dr. E.S. Holton's drugstore. Mrs. Holton was running the place today, though, and she was being run off her feet. Maybe it was some weird sixth sense that Holmes had, or maybe it was a genuine coincidence, but in he went and introduced himself to Mrs. Holton. He explained that he was new to the area, and that he was more than qualified with plenty of experience and was looking for work as a druggist. He did tell her that he had just come from working in a place in Philadelphia, but he didn't tell her that some random kid died under his, mm. possibly under his care. But Mrs. Holton must have thought that he was an angel because her husband was actually in the apartment above the store where they lived, bedridden in the last stages of prostate cancer. This fine young 26-year-old doctor was just what she needed and she basically hired him on the spot. He did. She did go and consult with her dying husband. But by the end of August, 
Dr. Holton had succumbed to his sickness and Holmes was already running the show downstairs. Female customers were flooding the store on a daily basis, just buying all sorts of random shit that they didn't need just for an excuse to talk with the new hotshot. Business was just booming. Yeah. And if it wasn't the ladies themselves, it was their mothers in saying, well, I have a lovely daughter now. Ah. It'd be just, just right for her. Mrs. Holton then sold the pharmacy to Holmes under the condition that she remained living in the apartment upstairs. Her whole life was it was here in Englewood. She had no family, no cousins, no mysterious aunties, no nothing. Probably not something you should tell Holmes. She just wanted to spend the rest of her days in the place where she had so many happy memories with her late husband. Yeah. So Holmes paid her a down payment and the deed was signed with the conditions that she stayed living there and he would pay her installments like a private mortgage arrangement. But what was the lesson that he had learned when he was a traveling salesman? It'd be better if you just keep the shit. Yeah. If I just keep all of the money for myself, Mm -hmm. then I'll have all of the money for myself. Right. So pretty soon Mrs. Holton was forced to threaten legal action, which like, just how awkward. Do you know what I mean? Like she lives upstairs. You're going to see her every day. Yeah. Like, how do you avoid that? Like, anyway, he sweet talked her for long enough and eventually she just had to go to a lawyer. But funnily enough, she then decided that she was going to go and live in California with all of her family that lived in California, far away from Chicago. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Her her family that like just like came to existence yeah. very suddenly. Exactly. Okay. And Holmes didn't waste any time moving into the apartment above the store. Very, very convenient for everyone. The Englewood locals adored the new druggist. And like I said, all the mothers were just hoping that their daughters would catch this eye. But Holmes traveled a decent amount for work. And he had been to to Minneapolis, like we said earlier. And there he had set his sights on a woman. Young, blonde, buxom and vulnerable. I think vulnerability was his sixth sense. You know what I mean? Like Uh any good manipulator or anything like that. He just knew yeah. When someone w- was maybe down on their luck or just easy prey, essentially. Yeah. So in late December of 1886, Holmes went on a business trip back up to Minneapolis and the two were married by January 28th, 1887. Now, in one source said like it was a, a whirlwind romance, but they had actually been talking back and forth for like a year at this point, like pen pals. Instant messaging back in the day. She moved to Chicago with him to work as a sales clerk in the pharmacy. And she was just in awe of her suave new husband. Initially, I think she was kind of excited by all of the female attention that her husband was getting. Not like in a sexual way or anything like that, but just a case of, oh, well, this is my husband. Like, yeah, I'm so happy that like, look at all these women that want him, but I have him. Yeah. But pretty soon that wore off. And jealousy started coming in, naturally mm-hmm. enough. But over the following year or so, these awkward, embarrassing scenes became a common thing for patrons of the pharmacy. They would just start snapping at each other. And eventually, Holmes ended up like convincing her that she needed to go and manage the books upstairs away from the shop. He, she was just killing his vibes. Yeah. Pretty much. Cramping his style. But by the spring of 1888, she was pregnant. And absolutely miserable. She was lonely, no friends, no nothing. So she wrote to her parents and asked them to move to Illinois so she wouldn't have to raise the child alone. 
if nothing else, Holmes was a busy man and I don't think like anybody expected him to stop working and her parents seemed more than happy to come help. This setup was perfect for Holmes anyway. He could support his family from a distance and visit whenever he got a chance and Myrtha absolutely idolised him. Right? Did I even say her name? Who is Myrtha? I didn't even introduce her. I left that out. Sorry, the lady that he married was Myrtha. Myrtha Belknap. I don't know how I left that out. <laughs> she was just wife. Yeah, just wife. Literally, that's how she was in my notes. So sorry. So the wife's name was Myrtha Belknap. Thanks. Um, I think I might have deleted a paragraph or something. <laughs> nice. Sorry, creeps. Anyway. But yeah, so Myrtha absolutely idolized him. So did her parents. Myrtha described him as being almost angelic, with his only downfall being ambition. Now, this was years later. She also said that he had a mad fascination with babies. The fuck? Yeah, any baby at all. He does love them. He really genuinely loved playing with babies. How strange. Yeah, to the point where if they were traveling anywhere, and like in a train or whatever, and there was a baby in the car, he would tell Myrtha, Go and see if they won't lend you that baby a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And like people back then were a lot more trusting. Like, yeah. But she did say also that she never saw a baby that wasn't happy to go with him. And he had like a knack of like just settling babies. It's his charm. Yeah. Like Dwight. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, as far as Martha was concerned, the babies were the best judge of character. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah, very few people did seem to see through Holmes's false exterior, though. Um, Myrtha's uncle did. Like, he knew there was something sketchy about him. Really? Yeah. There was, like, a small handful of people that could see past it. Yeah. I like to think I would see past it. I don't trust fucking anybody, I feel like. Yeah. I'm always very standoffish. There's something weird about that guy. And mm, two weeks yeah. later, I'm like, I don't know, he's just wearing like different shoes than me. But I mean, more often than not, you're like pretty dead on. Well, yeah, so far. Anyway, just one example of her husband's shadiness was the fact that he wasn't even technically her husband. Oh, that was also like a flimflam. Kind of, because he was still married to his high school sweetheart from Kilmanton. Oh, shit. Remember Clara? Clara Mudgett? Clara Lovering Mudgett? Mm. Clara (laughs) the clucking chicken. Yeah. He even went to the courthouse to try and file for divorce, but like just never went back and eventually just got thrown away. But people use that as like, you know, I mean, maybe he wasn't all bad. He did try. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It was weird. To be honest, I think it was one of the few records that was in like Chicago court records or something like that. So people really cling to it like, a no, look, Holmes was here this day. Like, you know. Yeah. Anyway, around the same time, Myrtha moved into the new house in Wilmot with her folks. Holmes secured the deed to the plot of land directly across from his drugstore, registering it under the new name H.S. Campbell, because apparently you could just make up whatever you fucking wanted without anyone checking back then. He got to work immediately designing his dream building on his own because he didn't need an architect. An architect would just get in the way of the real plans for the building. And here is where some of the debunking is going to come into play. Not a huge amount, but like I was saying earlier, there was a lot of exaggeration and false claims made of the beast of Chicago and this particular building. Funky Herman's fuckhouse. (laughs) But still... The building itself was a thing of grandeur 
and locals would stop and admire it as it was being built. Although it took approximately three times longer than any other building of this magnitude, but nobody really seemed to notice, and it probably just added to the appearance of extravagance. People were like, oh, they're really taking their time because there's so much, you know, detail and stuff. But it was said to have been finished in May of 1890, more than a year and a half after construction had begun. And we know the real reason why it took so long. Holmes was a con man above all else. He was a smooth talking grifter who could charm the pants off of anyone. He could sell rain jackets in the desert. And so he would hire skilled laborers to come in, do their work at whatever it was, like this random little section of the building. But then when it came time to pay them, he would accuse them of shoddy craftsmanship and send them on their way. A horrible thing to do. But there were so many people in Chicago at that time looking for work that he could just literally walk onto the street and pick up the next skilled laborer. Yeah. Like there was carpenters and bricklayers. All these people had come to Chicago because of the World's Fair that was supposed to be happening in 1893. But everybody had the same idea. So there was an abundance of skilled laborers. Obviously, the other reason behind this was that nobody knew just what they were really building. People were only getting glimpses of certain sections of the building. And ultimately, this meant that only H.H. Holmes himself really knew the place inside and out. Now, you would think that some of these workmen would have put up a bit of a fight with Holmes after being screwed over, but... The ones who did the responsible thing and took up legal action against them found that Holmes knew all sorts of ways to just prolong, drag out such matters with pointless litigation. Mm. Anyway, basically just not making it, just making it not worth pursuing. While other more hot-headed individuals were scared off by Holmes's right-hand man, Benjamin Peitzel. Peitzel was the muscle. Another man named Patrick Quinlan would go on to become the caretaker of the building and Charles Chappell started as a run-of-the-mill labourer, but proved to be more useful to Holmes in other areas. What made these men stand out from the others that he would just fire at the drop of a hat? Well, one account from a fellow who worked on the building said that Holmes approached him on his second or third day and asked if he would like to make some easy money. Much easier than this bricklaying business. And obviously the guy was like, yeah, Absolutely. A few days later, he approached the man again, pointed to a guy in the basement. I guess the basement was still open at this point. And Holmes said, that's my brother-in-law and he's got no love for me. Neither have I for him. Now, it would be the easiest matter for you to drop a stone on that fellow's head while you're at work. And I'll give you $50 if you do. The equivalent of around $1,500 today. Whoa. Yeah. This man had decent morals and didn't kill the, quote, brother-in-law. But he said that Holmes was so casual when he asked him and he literally just started working there. Like a literal, a literal stranger. But this proves that this must have been a common enough test for Holmes to carry out. And Peitzel, Chappelle and Quinlan obviously passed the test. I see. So the first floor of the building was all commercial space some of which were going to be used for Holmes's random business ventures, while others would be rented out to whatever local businesses, barber shops and stuff. On the second floor was Holmes's private office and apartment. There were 51 doors on this floor, 
along six corridors which zigzagged at peculiar angles and were sparsely lit by gas lamps that were spaced at odd intervals, too far apart. 35 rooms were totally normal bedrooms, furnished, ready to be rented. Other, less ordinary rooms were said to be soundproofed, made airtight with special asbestos panels, rigged with gas pipes that could only be turned on or off from Holmes's bedroom, doors that could only be locked from the outside, secret peepholes and rumours of secret passages, sliding panels, trap doors and greased chutes leading straight to the basement. The basement, which was said to have an acid tank, quicklime vats, dissecting table and other things that should only be in an operating theatre or a mad scientist's lair. Apparently one of his genius plans was to make a super race of giants. See this giants thing coming back up again? Yeah. He had come up with a machine called the Elasticity Determinator. That sounds painful. It was literally just a slightly more modern take on a medieval torture rack. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. Another thing that we know for sure is that he did have a kiln that was capable of heating up to 3,000 degrees. This was very, very true. We know this because Holmes had tried to build it himself or modify it himself. He had great ingenuity, but he just couldn't get it to work quite as well as he wanted. So he had to call in a professional. This dude from like a downtown furnace builders or something. He tried to get this man to just explain exactly what he would need to do. But eventually the guy was like, dude, I can't like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I need to see this thing. And eventually Holmes brought him down to this darkened corner of this mysterious basement and had him do the work. Holmes had explained that he was starting up a glass bending business, which was a booming industry at the time. And he did have a storefront for this in the building. But when the furnace guy went back to his boss the next day, they laughed at how silly the design of this rich man's kiln was. The interior was three feet high, three feet wide and eight feet long. He couldn't bend glass in this. It would have been more at home in a crematorium. Oh, oh these oh. people with limited imaginations. Yeah. They were just so trusting. Yeah. This was the issue, I, I really think. Another thing he had installed that we know for sure was a safe. Every building needs a safe, right? Like still to this day, you need a safe. There's nothing strange about that. Only this safe was the same size as a walk-in bank vault. We know about the bank vault because he acquired it using the same rascality he had shown when he was stealing profits as a travelling salesman. He bought the vault on credit, just like every other item in the building. Not even just things that weren't strapped down, like I'm talking everything in that building was bought on credit. And then he just didn't pay any of the payments. So the repo guys were sent out and he was very polite, very courteous. He told them, go ahead, get it. He even walked them to the room where the vault was located. The room that he had built around the vault, which obviously you would need to take down walls to take this vault out of. Mm -hmm. And he then told them that if they so much as scratched the floor, he would sue the pants off of them. So they had no choice but to just leave it there. Like, fuck, it's built into this building now. <laughs> like, literally, it just had a regular sized door and then you would walk in and then there's the vault. Yeah. Creepy. And this was just one of many, many scams he pulled off. Another little grab of his was an invention that turned regular tap water into gas, like for lamps and shit, not petrol. 
and this got the attention of a group of Canadian investors who came down to see it in action. They were so impressed that they offered him almost $10,000 for the patent on site. This was one of those good old-timey miracle machines, so like knobs and pipes everywhere, little bits of steam spewing out. And Holmes would pour a cupful of water into the top of it, screw the cap back on, add some mysterious chemicals, turn some valves, and then gas would magically come out of it, like the end of the pipe. He would strike a match like a magician pulling off a trick and it would light. Water into gas, just like Jesus. So there was so many pipes and different things coming and going that the investors missed the one that was actually sneaking down the back, through the floor and into the city gas supply. (laughs) Okay, it was literally just one single pipe doing all of this work. And the city found out about it and sent inspectors. But like Holmes just sweet talked them back out of it. They didn't press charges or anything like that. It was just a glorified cigarette lighter. They were like, okay, okay, but we're taking the machine. You can't use this thing. They didn't know if it was safe or not. But that was fine. He still had his $10,000 as far as I can see. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like it was The money was paid. Yeah, much, Mm. much later, the city found out about it. Another example of his rascality. A furniture company came calling to collect a whole pile of stuff that Holmes had yet again just not paid for. Only to find that the stuff they were looking for had just vanished. Now, I'm assuming this part here, but I know for a fact that he used various companies to fit out like all of the bedrooms with full suites of furniture. Like they weren't just calling out to repossess your granny's plastic covered love seat. Like this was an entire hotel's worth of beds, dressers, whatever. All gone. Apparently, the company later bribed one of Holmes's employees who told him that he had actually piled all of the furniture into one room and then completely walled it off. What the fuck? Yeah, just built a wall where the door was. So the, the company literally just couldn't find their stuff. Now, I love... Did they? Did he eventually break the wall down? And reuse the stuff, yeah. yeah I think oh. that was the plan, yeah. But, like, I kind of love this type of rascality honestly and someone used that word to describe Holmes and all of his activities it's my favorite word like I genuinely think I want to get this tattooed it's like it's like a watered down version of what was really going on oh no this yeah 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 so I mean the thing is the bad stuff just hadn't happened yet yeah but I I genuinely love rascality so much. Other forms of rascality that I didn't like so much were like in June of 1890. When the building was ready to be moved into and Holmes was just becoming too busy to run his pharmacy. So he sold it to a nice young man named A.L. Jones. Jones had come to Englewood from Michigan with dreams of success and making a happy life for him and his new bride. Holmes showed him around the drugstore and Jones realized that this was an opportunity that he couldn't pass up. There were so many customers that Holmes struggled to get a chance to even answer his questions. So many customers, in fact, that it was like people were being paid to come in and buy completely random shit just to give it the appearance of a bustling business. But it was like, regardless of this, it was a really good business, like regardless of the bogus shoppers and stuff. Holmes assured him that he would have all of the business in the neighborhood because, again, he was just too busy to run the drugstore anymore. So this is all you. The young man had the money that he had inherited from his recently deceased father. 
And wouldn't you know, that's the exact cost of what this business was being sold for. The fuck? That big pile of money in your pocket that you just inherited, give it to me and I'll give you all this. Sound investment. Things were looking up for Mr. Jones until a few weeks later when Holmes unveiled the latest store in his new building. H.H. H. Holmes's Pharmacy. Oh my God. Directly across the street from this <gasps> lame, gross old, quote, cow shed of a building in comparison to the new one. And it was only a matter of weeks before Jones had to move back home penniless and downtrodden. That is so fucked up. Yeah. So I think what I would like to do going forward is if we make a list of good rascalities and bad rascalities, this is a bad rascality. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to end this episode. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so that these stories for me, I know there's a lot of random facts in here, but it really builds the character of Holmes that I didn't know before. Like when I had heard other documentaries or other podcasts, like it's just like, murderer straight up villain this that and all the rest but like some of his stuff some of his rascalities were almost admirable in just the sheer cheek of it mm-hmm. you know what i mean and it hasn't all quite gone to his head yet but it will definitely all right so that was interesting i know he's like a very um he he's very in what what is the word? Uh, there's a lot of ingenuity to his scam artistry. Yeah, he's one of those people that's like, if he had put that much effort into just doing a regular thing, like maybe it would have paid off. But yeah. He was impatient. Mm-hmm. And the big thing kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. At this point in 1890, he just turned 30. And he was already an old man by the day's standards. Like yeah. at 26, he was like this young hotshot coming in from fucking Moore's Forks or wherever he had come from Philadelphia but at 30 it's like well he's getting on now yeah he should have had this fortune made already Mm -hmm. and he definitely had the appearance of fortune right but yeah so I don't know it just seems like a lot of wasted talent yeah exactly like yeah if only he just wasn't so soulless and heartless yeah. He could have really made something. I know. Like that I'm literally sometimes I'm as I'm reading the story, I know bad shit happened and all that. But up till this point, you're kinda of going, What like okay, well he did screw over like that was a big ass company though, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, and, big and companies it, can take a hit. And I know <laughs> what's to come, but it's just like uh, at this point, we're not even there yet, but at this point it's just a sheer waste of a person. Yeah. A sheer waste of talent. You know? Yeah. And so far, I mean, like, the thing with the Joneses really upset me. Not yeah, gonna lie. I was like, man, that was just a shitty thing to like, do. Like, I get it. Like, you scam big companies to find exactly. whatever. But this fucking person, like, it, a human. A hu- his new bride. Yeah. His dad's inheritance. That's so fucked. Yeah. That's so, so fucked. definitely that's going in the bad risk. All right. So, I guess this is going <laughs> to be like the first man that's fucked. Of the rest of this. Exactly. This whole, this fucking wormhole yeah. of H.H. Holmes. So there you guys go. Um, I know typically, like I was saying earlier, that the true crime stuff doesn't really get as much of a response, but I fucking love this story. Like, there's so much. I think much... it's because it's so layered. Yeah, that's it. Like, yeah. it's so layered. And again, this is without the, um, 
like the potentially made up stories. Like these are all the provable sources, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, very, very interesting. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed. That's about it. Make sure to follow us on all of our other shit. Dulce's Twitch, Kitty Cat Country. Google that wherever you like. <laughs> <laughs> That'll come up. You're doing your book reviews. On the 21st, this one's a fucking behemoth. Nice. So that's why it's taking me two weeks to finish this one. And I'll be streaming the last of Old Man's Journey tomorrow. Well, Sunday. Sunday, yeah, yeah. Which will be today, I think, this mm-hmm. episode will come out. So at what time? Four. Four o'clock central. Mm-hmm. So do the math. I never know what it is. I always have to Google CST and EST and all that crap. But yeah, and then check out our TikToks, um, Instagram. I'm Weekly Creep. Adam, you're just Weekly Creep. No, you're Kitty Cat Country on TikTok. Yeah. Kitty Cat Country everywhere. Weekly Creep everywhere. Get on it. All right. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.